Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Paul's. It's uh, lovely to have you with us, whether uh, this is your first time or you've been coming for ages and ages. My name's Andy. If we haven't met, I'm on the staff here. And um, we're going to spend the next little while looking at this passage from Acts 17 together and asking what what does it mean together. Uh, And um, I'm just going to begin our time um, by praying for God's help. And so let's pray as we begin. Our Lord God, this book was written so that we would know the the certainty of the things we've been taught. And so we pray that this morning, as we study it together, you would help us to understand what it means and that you would give us that confident certainty in the message that it contains by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so here's the question. What would it take to win a sophisticated, secular, and multicultural society like ours to the Lord Jesus Christ? What would it take to see Sheffield full of healthy and vibrant Christian churches and believers? Um, I take it if you're a Christian here today, you'll know that there is nothing better in the whole world than a relationship with our creator God through his son, Jesus Christ, and that um, you long, as I do, for others to know God in Christ and enjoy that relationship. As um, Uh, As a member of the staff uh, at this church, I I look at this region and long to see those healthy, vibrant churches because I I long to see people knowing Jesus for themselves. And if uh, you've been with us as we've been studying Acts, we've seen together that that really is the, um, the marching orders of the Christian church to take the good news we have and to share it widely and yet, if you're anything like me, I guess you probably look at the reality of our, um, our region and maybe of friends and family, and um, it feels like we're a long way from um, our, our city and our society being one for the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing him themselves. And um, if the stats are to be believed, 98% of people in Sheffield won't be in a church of any kind this Sunday. And I guess you'll know that in your experience, that there are many people, whether it's um, friends on the school gate or um, pundits in the media, who would say that um, Christianity is something that's that's divisive, that's unnecessary, that is um, intolerant or bigoted even. Um, Maybe if uh, uh, you're like me, you feel like sometimes the gospel is on the back foot in our culture. And what would it take to see things change and to see our city and our culture one for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you've been here with us in the book of Acts, we've been seeing as the Christian, uh, we've been watching as the Christian gospel exploded the unstoppable advance of the message of Jesus throughout the world from its starting place in Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria and sort of modern day Israel, Palestine, and then beyond that to the ends of the earth. And the Roman Empire, that multicultural, sophisticated and pluralist society in many ways like our own, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely exploding outwards in the book of Acts. And the question is, what, uh, what is causing it? Uh, what um, could lead a society like the Roman Empire or like ours to be one for Jesus Christ? And um, if you were here with us last week as we were looking at Acts 16, um, we've seen in some ways an answer to that question from God's perspective 
So last week we were seeing that, um, uh, that the gospel begins with God. In Acts 16 verse 14, we met a prosperous businesswoman called Lydia and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And so we were seeing last week that if um, Sheffield and Britain and our world is to be one for Christ, we need God to be at work opening people's eyes and hearts to the truth about himself. I hope that we're a people who are praying for our city then and praying for those we know. Uh, This week in Acts 17, we see an answer to that question from um, the human perspective, if you like, the other side of that coin. What is it that we need to be doing if our city and our friends and family are to be one for the Lord Jesus? And two big things in the passage. The first one is this, for Christians to share the convincing gospel. Share the convincing gospel. Uh, Come with me to Thessalonica in modern day Greece. Someone was just telling me their family are on holiday there right now. Um, Thessalonica in Greece, where in verse one, Paul goes to a Jewish synagogue. And then verse two, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And we're being introduced here to Paul's ordinary method when he arrives in a new city. This is Paul's strategy for winning the world over to the Lord Jesus Christ. As his custom was, he went in and reasoned with them from the scriptures. Uh, We're going to see again and again over the next few chapters that phrase, he reasoned with them from the Bible. Uh, We'll see it in Athens next week in verses 17, 18, and 22. We'll see it uh, in Corinth in chapter 18, and again in Ephesus, Paul's measured, unchanging, and steady pattern of gospel ministry is to go somewhere and talk to people about Jesus from the Bible. See, we're being shown that, um, humanly speaking, under God, the thing that will win the world is Christians speaking about Jesus from the Bible. Uh, nothing more dramatic or outrageous than that, speech about Jesus. And notice that what Paul does here is verbal. Look at the words that are used. Verse two, he reasoned with them. Verse three, explaining and proving Uh, Verse three again, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you. Verse four, some of the Jews were persuaded. You see, these are, um, they're speaking words, aren't they? What Paul is doing is is talking. Um, Paul's priority as he gets to Thessalonica, as it has been again and again through this book, is not um, spiritual experience or, or social action, but speech about Jesus first and foremost. What he does is turn up, open a Bible, and talk to people about Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me just say at this point, um, the way that you live as a Christian is hugely important to your gospel witness. Of course it is. If you live in a way that contradicts the gospel, then um, you'll never speak to anyone about it. But if you live a godly life, but never open your mouth and speak about Jesus... Well, people will come away thinking that you're a good guy, not Jesus is a good saviour, won't they? What Paul does here is turn up and talk to people about Jesus. It's verbal what he does. And notice too, it's flexible. 
Uh, In verse three, the word for preaching is used. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you. But there's a load of other words as well, aren't there? Reasoned, explained, proved, persuaded. Um, Don't picture Paul just standing in a pulpit like this one, speaking to a crowd. There was an element of that in his ministry, clearly. But this is also Paul over coffee after the service. Paul at the school gate on Monday morning. Paul speaking to his clients as he made tents for them on a Wednesday afternoon. You know, Paul in the pub after the match. This is... um, Uh, This is discussion and debate. This is dialogue, answering questions, talking about Jesus in all sorts of contexts. And you see, the point isn't that Paul was a brilliant salesperson or a persuasive communicator. You know, um, you you ever met someone like that? You know, I, I um, I never meant to buy anything when I came in here. But, um, but now I've talked to them for 20 minutes and, um, and I just feel like maybe, I, maybe actually I do need that second car or whatever it is. Paul, Paul's not, it, it's not, that's not the point that Paul is someone like that. The point is that Paul has a persuasive message. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a point out of the fact that he wasn't a great speaker or a brilliant salesman. So just look at the content of what Paul says this deeply convincing message. Um, notice that it's, um, it's truthful. Verse three, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. This Jesus. Um, when Paul says this Jesus, he's not talking about a fictional character. He's talking about a real person who lived just about 20 years earlier and just around the Mediterranean from where the Thessalonians were. This Jesus was someone they could have heard about from friends who lived just a short distance away, who told them that they had met him. This Jesus was a man who lived and died and who witnesses said that he was publicly risen from the dead not long ago at all. It was a historical message that he was preaching to them. Now, look, I promised that I would, um, I would limit my number of references to the football this morning. So this is your, this is your one mention, okay? Um, if I told you that 22 years ago, Gareth Southgate dramatically missed a penalty against Germany in a semi-final, how would you know if that message was worth listening to? Well, you could go and look at the, um, the evidence of eyewitnesses, couldn't you? What I did this morning, just to fact check and get it right, was to go and look at eyewitness testimony, just Googled it and saw what people said. Yeah, that's something that really happened. And you see, it's that sort of claim that Paul is making as he stands in that synagogue, a truthful, historical claim, one that's objective and open to research. He stood there and said, this Jesus, 20 years ago, died publicly, and the same people who saw him crucified saw him risen from the dead. You see, it's a deeply convincing message, not just good advice, but good news. But notice too, it's not only truthful, but wonderful. Not just news, but good news, beautiful and right news. Verse three, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ or the Messiah. The story of the Bible is about God's promise to send a king, 
That's what Christ or Messiah means. I was, um, I was talking to a guy just a couple of weeks ago, and, um, and he said to me, Andy, I stopped believing in God the day that my father died. I realized that the world was just not as orderly and planned as I thought. The local vicar came around and he had nothing to say to that. And so that day I stopped believing in God. Now I wonder what you would have said to that. I'll tell you what I said and you can tell me afterwards at the door whether you think it was any good. I'm really sorry that the vicar didn't have anything to say to that. Because actually I think that at one level that's basically what the Bible is about. Basically a book about why the world is broken and full of suffering and grief and loss. And about God and his amazing promise to fix all that is broken with our world. That's what the Bible's about. Not just news, but good news. The Bible says the reason at heart that our world is not as it should be is because we have not loved God and other people in the way that we should. And we feel the consequences of that at a million levels. And the Bible is full of the history of God promising again and again to send a king who would fix what is broken with our world. A king who would die bearing on his own shoulders our shame and guilt and the punishment we deserve for not loving God and other people. And a king who would rise again, punching through death so that we could be given eternal life in a kingdom where there'll be no more pain and suffering and death anymore. A life that starts now and goes on to eternity. You see, not just truthful, but wonderful. Not just news, but good news. And look how the people respond. Verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. See, here is a deeply convincing message, a powerfully persuasive gospel that Paul preached, one that was truthful and wonderful, true and good. And let me say, if you're here today as a Christian, living in a sophisticated and secular multicultural society like ours, we can have confidence that the gospel we have really is good news. It really is persuasive. If I can put it like this, the the message that persuaded you to be a Christian, it will actually work for other people as well. How often do we feel like that? How often do we feel like, well, it was enough to persuade me, but it it would never work for the guy at work. Couldn't imagine my friend at school believing it. Well, here is a message that is true and good and persuasive and so unto God what the world needs is Christians who share that message who open our mouths and speak but then secondly we see in this encounter in Acts 17 that the world needs Christians who expect contrasting responses who expect contrasting responses did you notice how starkly different the responses in Thessalonica versus Berea In Thessalonica, all you get is hostile opposition. The temperature is turned up in Berea. You have honest searching. And in this section, Luke shows us something about the hearts of the hearers, their inner motives, and something about their hands, about their actions. So just look with me at Thessalonica for a minute and hostile opposition. 
Uh, verse 4, some of them were persuaded, as were a large number of Greeks and, uh, a few God-fearing, and not a few God-fearing women, but, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in that city. Um, uh, Paul, the speaker here, is Jewish, and many of those who believed were Jewish. So I take it in verse 5, when it talks about the Jews, it's making a comment about the sort of the Jewish leadership, the Jewish authorities, or something like that. And notice how they respond is, is profoundly emotional. They were jealous They were furious at loss of influence. You see, here's the thing. It's not that they weighed up the truth and found it wanting, but that they saw that as people turned to follow Jesus, their own influence was diminishing, and so they're moved by anger. And what they do is try everything they can to push the gospel of Jesus out of town. Verse 5, they, um, they round up some bad guys on zero-hour contracts who are happy to riot for cash, and they cause a total scene in the city. They go to the house where Paul and his colleagues are staying, and when they can't find them there, they find any Christians they can and drag them out in front of the city officials. <clears throat> and then they make this accusation, verse 6, these men who've caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Now, there are a couple of big ironies with this accusation. Uh, the first is that, um, of course, they caused the trouble, didn't they? They stir up a riot, and then they pull these guys in front of a judge and say they've caused trouble. You know, it's... Um, uh, I don't know if you ever did this as a kid. I have ve- vivid memories of, um, uh, of some ornaments that my parents told us not to touch and, um, and taking the opportunity to take one from the mantelpiece and put it in my younger sister's hands. And then mum, Emma, is playing with the ornaments. And it's the sort of big-scale equivalent of that here, really, isn't it? They stir up a riot and then they say, these guys caused the problem. You know, here we have... Um, Christians just speaking a message, and they will do anything they can to paint them as a threat to society. Now, this is the argument that says Christians are bigoted fundamentalists or intolerant and dangerous. The argument that says religion causes all wars. This is, um, <laughs> this is the argument that will do anything to paint Christians as out of line and a problem for society. And the irony here that Luke wants us to see is that, well, they caused the problem in the first place. The Christians were just getting on with speaking about Jesus. But then secondly, notice there's a a big irony in what they say at the end of verse 7. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Jesus. And it's ironic because, of course, Jesus claims to be king. That's what Christ or Messiah means. It means one God has promised to be king over everyone. But, of course, if, um, if you were awake for our first reading from Romans, that wasn't just for fun. Um, that, was, um, that, that was showing us, actually, that following King Jesus doesn't make you a rioter or a revolutionary, but a better citizen, Jesus calls his followers to submit to authorities. And the great irony here is that what they say in verse 7 reveals very starkly the jealousy of their hearts. 
Because, of course, the reason that they are furious about this gospel is precisely because it preaches that someone else is king. Jesus Christ is ruler over them, the one they must listen to. The question that the gospel of Jesus asks us is will we let him wear the crown in our lives and follow him? What do you do when you find something in the Bible that you don't like or you don't agree with? The question that the gospel asks us is at that moment, will I let Jesus be king and submit to him or will I insist on wearing the crown? And here in Acts 17, we're being shown that there will be people who are very hostile to the gospel. We're to expect that. But it doesn't mean that there's something defective about the gospel itself, but that they don't want Jesus to be king over them. I wonder if you've ever had the sort of experience where you just feel like you've taken a big knock in talking to people about Jesus. You know, I remember when I first started really opening my mouth as a, as a new Christian, I, I, told, um, I told my sixth form English teacher what I believed as a Christian. And she's a great teacher, got on really well with her, but on that occasion, I told her what I believed, and she said, um, Andy, I, I just thought you were smarter than all this religious stuff. I thought you were too intelligent to believe that kind of nonsense. And I have to be honest, for several weeks afterwards, that just blew a hole through my confidence. It was like it zipped my mouth closed as a Christian because I was left thinking, am I just not very good at explaining it? Or actually, is this gospel I believe, does it, I mean, is it really true? Does it really work? When she heard it, she just seemed completely unfussed. In fact, frankly, she thought it was stupid Maybe you've had an experience like that. You you try to talk to someone about Jesus. It just goes badly and you think, I'm not going to do that again. Well, look, Acts 17 is here to show us that if you speak to someone about Jesus and the response is hostile, it's not because there's something wrong with you, certainly not something wrong with the message of Jesus. It's a powerfully persuasive message. But for many people, they simply will not have Jesus as king and so they'll do anything they can not to hear about him. And so we'd have confidence in the message, even in the face of hostile opposition. But then notice too, if on the one hand we're to expect hostile opposition, we're also to expect honest searching. Come with me to Berea in verses 10 and 11. Let's go straight to verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Notice the comment about their hearts and about their actions. Their hearts, they were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. They were honest and upright in the way they responded when they heard this message. Another translation puts it like this, that the Bereans were more open-minded than the Thessalonians. And so what did they do? Well, they received the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures, the Bible, to see if what Paul said was true. That they weren't gullible, It's not that Paul rolled into town and said, let me tell you about Jesus. And they said, brilliant. We'll believe anything you say. No, they're critical. Um, Verse 11, the word examined the scriptures. It's It's a legal word for weighing up evidence. But what they did 
was open-mindedly weigh the evidence. Is this historically truthful? Is it as good as what Paul says it is? Can I believe this for myself? Look, I know that none of us are neutral when we come to a new idea. We're all carrying intellectual baggage with us. And it's not that the Bereans were like a blank sheet. But nevertheless, they were willing to acknowledge their baggage and to give it a fair hearing to open-mindedly consider what they were being told. And look, notice, it wasn't easy for them. Verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Now here, those who are hostile to the gospel are so hostile, they're willing to walk the 50 miles from Thessalonica to Berea over a mountain range to stop people hearing about it. Just to give you an idea, that's basically walking from Liverpool to Sheffield to stop someone hearing about Jesus. So it wasn't easy for them. And let me say, it might be that um, you're here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're just looking in on Christian things, and you might be all too aware that we live in a culture where there are many people who don't want you to think about Jesus, who think it's stupid or bigoted or divisive or wrong somehow, but can I, can, I, can I encourage you, be like the Bereans, not like the Thessalonians. You know, the Bereans, they weren't credulous. They didn't believe everything they were told, but they certainly open-mindedly weighed the evidence, even when it was hard and there was pressure not to. They were brave enough to give the gospel a fair hearing. Let me encourage you to be like them. But let me say too, if you're here this morning as a Christian and as one who wants to speak of Jesus, there is great encouragement for us here in Berea. Because look, yes, you're to expect some people to respond with hostile opposition to what you have to say, but there will be many who give the gospel of Jesus an open-minded hearing, who want to hear more. You know, a few weeks ago, ben, mentioned, uh, ben Cooper, who works here, mentioned a survey of, um, of non-Christian people in which um, two-fifths of people, that's 40% of people, said they'd love their Christian friends to talk about Jesus more than they do. They'd love to hear more. And I can tell you again and again from my experience that this is the case. Uh, and not, not all people who I have spoken to about Jesus, but I could tell you about Adam, who, uh, who I knew in youth group, or, um, or Gareth from university, or John and Debs, a young newly married couple, Ben and Anna with young children. But, um, but let me just mention a, a, another baptism service that I went to. Um, th- this wasn't the baptism of, of a beautiful little baby, but the baptism of some... Um, rather more um, wizened-looking, shall we say, 70- and 80-year-olds. And um, they'd not grown up um, going to church. They'd not been baptised as children. But, um, but they had friends in retirement who talked to them about Jesus. And having lived a whole life going one way, they'd been utterly convinced to turn and trust Jesus instead. See, it's a powerfully persuasive gospel. And yes, there might be people who don't want to hear it, but there are many who are willing to open-mindedly consider it. If only we'll speak. If only we'll have the confidence that the gospel has the power to do that, to change hearts and minds. 
because I finish, let me, um, let me just mention something um, from um, the student ministry over the last year. If you're a student here this morning, this is your opportunity to, um, to pat yourself on the back. Um, one of the things that's really encouraged me has been seeing students um, say to a friend, um, would, would you look at one of the Gospels with me? They've got these brilliant little uncover Gospels. You might have seen them. It's just one of the four Gospels from the New Testament with some questions alongside it so that you can get together and work through the questions and just look at what it says together. And this is the bit where I have to ask the students not to be offended. These guys are 18-year-olds, and they're doing it, and people are being persuaded You see, you don't need a theology degree or to be a great salesperson or something like that. You don't need special training because these guys, they're 18 and they're doing it. They believe that the gospel is powerfully persuasive and so they're asking people to look at it. And look, so here's the thing. If you would like a copy of Uncover, I will buy you one as long as you ask someone to read it with you. I will buy it for you. Someone already asked me at the 9.15, will you buy me one? I don't have them with me, but I will, I will get it to her to read with a friend. This message, it, it's truthful and wonderful. It's true and it's good, and it's powerfully persuasive, deeply convincing. And what the world needs is Christians who believe that and will speak, even when they meet contrasting responses. Let me pray. Our Lord God, we long that our city and our nation and our world would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and all the blessings of a relationship with him. And so we pray to you, as we were hearing last week, that you would open hearts and minds to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But we ask too that you would make us those who speak, who know the gospel and share it. In Jesus' name. Amen.